40 Futures is a speculative fiction series about the criminal justice system, written and read by Jason Taché. Drive-by. Dude, what are you doing? Officer Chen punched his right arm forward as if ushering the police cruiser through the intersection. Don't stop! Officer Reynolds bristled as he brought the car to a standstill. There's a stop sign, Reynolds indicated with a flip of his hand. The red octagon sat just above Chen's passenger side window, clear as day. Hovering above it were signs for division in Wilson Streets. From a bird's eye view, the sign's X marked this spot in West Baltimore. Each side of the street was lined with century-old row homes, red brick piled 30 feet high, skinny four-pane windows with white trim running up the front of each. Are you new? Chen asked his partner of 16 months. You can't break like that and expect your performance raise next spring. Ugh, protested Reynolds. Is this more about that public safety score nonsense? Listen, that little chip in the engine picks up everything you do, and you get rewarded or punished for it. Stopping at a stop sign, literally following the rules, is the very thing that gets rewarded. A car pulled up behind the cruiser and waited. A beat passed before Reynolds stuck his arm outside the window into the crisp fall air and waved the vehicle by. The driver was cautious, looking to avoid unwanted attention. He half-waved, but didn't linger. Neither officer noticed. How haven't we talked about this yet? Chen asked, confounded. That little chip is dumb. It doesn't know there's a stop sign here. It just knows you hit the brakes too hard. Just roll through stop signs and accelerate through yellow lights. It'll make your life easier. Reynolds gripped the wheel tighter and arched his wrists up as he considered how public safety had become a shell game. Instead of balls and cups, however, he played with reports and numbers. Okay, so say you are correct. Reynolds rolled the cruiser into motion and took a left onto the 500 block of Wilson Street. What other ways can you play with the score? That's the big one that I know of, he paused. Oh, and watch your ass in the bougie neighborhoods, Rowan Park, Mount Washington. Reynolds laughed and shook his head. (laughs) Why, are the doctors and lawyers of this fair city setting their own speed traps? It's an insurance thing. Actual tables, said Chen, looking out the window as they rolled past a stoop sail. Bright clothes twisted on plastic hangers next to old speakers and worn chairs. You mean actuarial tables? Reynolds smugly asked. Yeah, math. Chen dismissed the correction. A knocked-over mailbox in Rowan Park is going to be more expensive and more hassle than running over some poor schmuck's barbecue in Sandtown. The lawyers and doctors are going to get more because they make noise. That creates headaches that you just don't get in Sandtown. Unless someone actually gets hurt, of course. What does that have to do with the scores, Reynolds asked. The department doesn't want to deal with some rich idiot thinking they're owed. Chen's tone was irritated at explaining the obvious. So the powers that be make it worse for you, Mr. Peace Officer, if you get caught driving like a maniac in the nicer neighborhoods. Wait, I... Reynolds looked over at Chen. But it costs a rich family and a poor family the same amount of money to build a new mailbox or get a grill. Reynolds' comment hung in the cab as the patrol car crossed over the tree-lined demarcation between West Baltimore and Balton Hill, a preserved 19th-century gem populated with art students. Sure, but with all injuries being equal, shrugged Chen, a rich person's is just worth more.
Hello and welcome back to 40 Futures. I'm Jason Taché and I just got done reading the story Drive-By, which is the sixth installation. We are on the back half of this 40 Futures project of mine. Today's story is a little bit different in that as opposed to drawing conclusions about where ultimately a technology will take us, the story kind of gets to that question that you know, usually is what I spend the time in the commentary talking about. It's like, well, how do we get to this future? And I think this story more than the other nine that I wrote really gets to that question because it talks about kind of this intermediary period between where we are now and where we could be in the future, which in this case would be autonomous self-driving cars. The predicate for this story was a talk I heard given by Brian Casey, who used to be at Stanford Codex who was talking about how automated cars in the future, if they are fed insurance data, they will likely drive more reckless in poorer neighborhoods than rich neighborhoods because if something bad happens in a poor neighborhood, the data would show that insurance pays out less money than if something went wrong in a rich neighborhood. And that idea has constantly fascinated me for like the four or five years since I originally heard that talk. And so working backwards from that possible future, there, there are kind of three questions that I wanted to think about on, in this particular story. The first is, what are we optimizing for when we create these type of reward systems? Second is, how do we define metrics? And the third is, how do innocuous projects create insidious mission creep? And so I'm going to go through each three of those particular questions today. And to, so to start out, it's like, what are we optimizing for? And this is a chronic question when it comes to specifically data-driven policing, but really data-driven anything. I think when answering this question, we have to first be thinking about CompStat in New York City, uh, which became kind of the data-driven approach to public safety in many cities. This was an idea that started out in the 90s with Bill Bratton, who was the police commissioner at the time, and Ru Rudy Giuliani. And the idea was, is that each precinct needed to be optimizing its numbers for one, showing that there is a decreasing crime rate, and two, that case closures are being more successful. Like police are, can show that they're doing their job by closing, successfully closing their cases. And the reality of what came out of CompStat, uh, both in New York and, and in other places, was that it led to underreporting of crime or misclassification of crimes. No one better looked into this issue than The Wire, uh, which is the David Simon TV show about Baltimore, also taking place in the same city as this story uh, and where I used to live for seven years. And the, the Wire showed that like, if someone was going to be charged with a felony assault, you could always drop that down to a misdemeanor. If someone was popped for an intent to sell drugs, then that could be dropped down to merely a possession charge. And kind of what one of the seasons really pulls at, and in the show notes, there's a clip from this, is that the only thing you couldn't get away with in gaming or juking the stats, which was the parlance in The Wire, was murder because you can't get rid of the body. The body is there. You can't work around it. Murder is murder. This is the cup and ball game that Officer Reynolds talks about in his head uh, during this particular story. And so why this matters and what this has to do with this particular story is that when you start to optimize for something and you tell people you will be rewarded or punished based off of this optimization, then that creates a feedback loop, right? Like you've set up a standard, you've created a reward or punishment mechanism, and then people are expected to then optimize for that particular metric. 
And so in this particular story, the idea is if you're on the good side of the metrics, then you get rewarded, which then entrenches those acts and creates this self-reinforcing feedback loop. And this is something that's becoming really obvious in the world of predictive policing. And this is the idea that we can take crime data and use it to tell us where police need to be dispatched to, to hopefully stop crime from happening in the future or, or catch it in the act. The problem with this is that the computer program initially takes historic crime data and says, okay, this particular neighborhood is where we need to go send police because there's a lot of break-ins there. And so police will get sent because they're using the predictive policing system and they will go presumably make arrests. And then that data from those arrests gets put back into the software, only reinforcing the assumption that the software originally had that this one particular neighborhood was all of the problem. So then that data keeps coming back in, police keep getting sent back out, it reinforces the data, wash, rinse, and repeat, and now you have a constant cycle of cops going through a particular neighborhood, regardless of what may be happening in other parts of the city. This creates basically a machine-led blindness to how these issues should be solved or how these issues should be approached, but it also really illustrates this idea of like what an automated feedback loop looks like in policing, and it's a problem, and it's only going to become more of a problem as more aspects of policing become automated, which this kind of gets to the, the second major point. And that is, it's really important to be explicit about what is counted and how it is reported. And this is the obvious tension between officers Reynolds and Chen in the story. Like, at least in the story, the overarching goal, at least as Reynolds understands it, which is, seems to be a little bit naive, is that it's a public safety score. It's there to incentivize better driving and fewer accidents. Reynolds sees this as a very by-the-books approach. Chen no, has insight to at least two factors. One is uh, the braking force of the driver, and then second is insurance payouts. And it's important that one of these officers know this information because as soon as you know what the metrics are being counted as opposed to just receiving a safety score at your annual review is that it then opens the door for users of that system to gamify the metric itself, to do what they need to do to score better within the system. I mean, this is why video games are addictive. This is what we see with studies in children and adults as well. If you put out reward mechanisms, people will optimize for the reward. And so this gets us into the more insidious aspect here. It's one thing to be able to optimize for these particular metrics, but then there's the question of like, well, what does this actually mean then if for a public policy like this public safety score program that the Baltimore City Police Department is operating? If the numbers on aggregate look good because people are able to juke their stats, you know, either like in the case of CompStat where there were fewer crimes or more closed cases, or in the case of the safety program in Baltimore, there's fewer driving incidents and fewer insurance payouts, or at least less money is being paid out over the time. This really hides the overall equity issues, right? On aggregate, the data might look great, but as soon as you start to break it up, you then begin to see incidents. For example, you could have an increase in incidents in poor neighborhoods, but an overall drop in incidents and monetary payouts in the department as a whole. And they would then, you know, department leadership, city leaders would then claim this as a public safety success when in fact it's increased problems for the people that have always had the most problems within that community. This is something that we see with predictive policing. It's something that we saw in CompStat. It's something we should expect more of as police try to take this data-driven approach to public safety. 
as a side note, like one of the ways to get around this and to do a better job figuring out if there is this equity problem or if there are deeper, darker truths in the data than just the aggregate data is that we need to have police and law enforcement agencies publish their raw data when it comes to projects like this. We can't just trust the reports or the aggregate information that they like to publish and promote. If there's going to be true transparency, if automation and data-driven policing is ever going to be taken seriously and be successful, then they need to publish the raw data for independent researchers, policymakers, and journalists to be able to go through. But in the meantime, programs like this, I suspect, will only become more common as an attempt to increase police-community relations, to decrease police incidents of, of force or, or mistakes in the case of, of the public safety scores discussed in this particular story. And in that is where I wanted to get to the last point, is like, this is how mission creep happens, right? Projects start as something small, even kind of innocuous, like in this case, we just want cops to be able to drive better in the city and we wanna be able to incentivize you know, good behavior when they are out on patrol. That makes total sense from a policy perspective, it makes sense from a PR perspective. You could see why a department would do something with that. However, this particular vignette takes place in the middle of the self-driving car story, right? We are not in completely dumb cars. We have cars now that are collecting some data about the drivers themselves. And ultimately, we could assume, you know, if Tesla ever gets into the patrol car game or anybody else, then this type of data would be fed into the software of the autonomous vehicle itself, which then gets us to that whole feedback loop situation. But now the feedback loop is on like automated steroids. And it looks a little bit more like the predictive policing model that I was talking about, as opposed to this conversation that's happening in the car where it's kind of word of mouth is how officers figure out how to gamify these particular statistics. By the time we start putting that insurance data or this driving data into those cars and optimizing for the same metrics, then we have only automated a bad and broken system. And that is a chronic issue with a lot of these projects is they're looking to digitize existing processes as opposed to thinking about how the process could be improved and then thinking about digitization, which is a, an important takeaway here. And with, you know, with these tech projects specifically, Putting boundaries on the scope of the project is really critical about not letting it take on a life of its own, not letting the data begin to be used for something that it wasn't intended to be used. And this is what we get a lot of now. Predictive policing, for example, is pulling off of historical crime data. Historical crime data was never meant to have predictive algorithms built on it. And yet we're doing that in every state in the country today. And the data wasn't meant for this purpose which will have all kinds of implications if the quality of the data isn't terribly good or it's inaccurate either because of human error or because of the gamification that was going on like when CompStat was in full force and that was the model in which data was being collected, then you're going to build an automated system that believes this data to be true and that is going to hard code the inaccuracies and inequities in that data into whatever automated system gets built, which only doubles down on the problems we already have within law enforcement practices today. It doesn't fix them. 
And I think that's also super important. And the same is going to be true of the data that's collected in this story if it is then later applied to self-driving vehicles. And with that, I'm going to leave it there. I want to thank you again for listening to 40 Futures. For links to what I talked about today, check out justicetech.download. That is the URL. This is a project written, recorded, and produced by me, Jason Tache. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back in your feed next Thursday. Until then, take care.